if you would, turn your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter, we're actually going to go through chapters 1 and 2 today, try not to go too long through chapters 1 and 2. Um, while you're turning there, picture with me, you've got a young kid in your household, and uh, with COVID, they're not able to have the grandparents come over, so the grandparents mail the gifts ahead of time uh, to, to your family. And so the Christmas gifts are coming, they're from grandpa and grandma, and your child hears, you know, you've been looking at the tracking info, and the gifts are supposed to come in today, and your child hears you mention, you know, I think the mailman's going to be bringing their Christmas gifts for the kids, and, and your daughter hears this, and then she sees the mailman come with this gigantic box, and she just runs up to him, gives him this big hug, and thank you for the Christmas gifts. And you don't think much of it. You're like, well, maybe she's just really thankful. That's, that's a good thing to have. And so Christmas morning comes and, and opens the box. And in there is this, this most awesome thing she's always wanted. And she says, you know, Mommy, Daddy, uh, can I write a, a thank you note to the mailman for my gift? And you start to ask a few more questions. And you realize uh, she thinks the mailman took the time to figure out what she wanted invested the money into buying that thing, purchasing it for her, and then brought it to her. She's, she's misunderstood the gift and the giver. She's gotten all excited about the messenger and missed the actual giver, missed the actual point of the gift, missed the message. And that's sort of what we're going to see happening as we read in our passage this morning. If you would stand with me, uh, We'll stand for part of it, and then I'll let you sit down, and I'll keep reading through it. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his, wing, his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain you, they will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You can go ahead and sit down. I'll keep reading chapter 2 here. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a, a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will." For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
that has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, our Savior, our King, the, the message giver, the message given. Let us see him and be amazed and wonder at him this morning. We pray this all in his name. Amen. We're going through the book of Hebrews together. That is sort of, I took after Ben and decided I'm just going to take a book and we're just going to go for it every time I get the chance to preach here. So we're going through Hebrews. Uh, We we don't know who the author is specifically, but uh, we would assume it's a Jewish author who is very, very intimately acquainted with the Old Testament. They know it well and they have a masterful use of it. It is used in many quotes often. It supports much of what they say, uh, all the statements that he makes. And he has a deep love for the Lord and for God's people, evidenced in his writing of this letter as he exhorts them. Uh, The series that we're talking through is is sort of focused on staring at the sun to see life clearly. We talked about in the past how your mom tells you, don't look at the sun or you go blind. But but the author here is saying, look deeply at the sun. Focus on him, the S-O-N, that you might live and know life. The, The main point of the book might be summarized. Understanding that Christ, the Son, is the divine priest king of all should should cause us to respond in obedience, living by faith in him. And the book can be broken down in sort of four main sections. You have Christ the King is is the best message from God, chapter 1 through part of chapter 4. And then he is the priest who is the best means to God, Chapter, middle of chapter 4 to chapter 6, and then the blessings and betterness of him being the priest king from chapter 7 to the middle of chapter 10, and then the rest of chapter 10 on to the end of the book is the believer's response to Christ. And so we're right there in that very first part talking about him being the king and the message. It's written as an exhortation, chapter 13, verse 22 says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And so this is this, is this exhortation, this sermon that is calling upon them. It seems to be an exegesis of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 that pulls out both this aspect of Christ's sonship and Christ as the priest king and draws on these things and says that he is the one for all people, especially for Israel. 
the book flows in this progression with exhortations throughout, leading to this, this culmination of this final giant exhortation at the end. Why exhort them, though? Why exhort this audience, this, this Jewish audience of believers? They're, they're proselytes from Judaism to Christianity, and as such, they've been ostracized from everyone else around them. They live in this Greco-Roman culture with a Jewish flavor to it, and the Greco-Romans have re- rejected their Christ, thinking he is a cult. He is not a Messiah who would die on a cross. The Jews have rejected Christ, unwilling to blaspheme and call him Yahweh. And so they're suffering for their faith. They've lost relationships with those around them, even their family. They've lost prestige and places of prominence they once had. They've lost wealth and many earthly possessions that have been taken or destroyed. They've lost their freedom. They've been sent to jail. They've lost their voice, their ability to interact in the social sphere. They've lost their rights, their things, their ability to speak, their livelihoods, their ability to defend themselves. And now they're free and they may even lose their lives as well. They're beginning to think about giving up, doubting whether God is really worth it. They're thinking about going to their old ways of living. It's easier, it's more comfortable, it's acceptable to society around them. It's what they've always and already known. They're becoming complacent and willing to look for lesser joys. They're considering turning from Christ who's brought all this pain into their lives. and They've forgotten that he alone is the only source of true joy that they might find. They've looked away. They're starting to turn from him. And the author seeks to exhort and encourage them, turn back, look at the sun that you might truly live. And so today's main point, if you're taking notes, today's main point of the passage we're looking at in chapters one and two is live in light of the message of Christ. Live in light of the message of Christ, and we'll look more at what that means. Last time we sort of looked at verses 1 through 4 here as sort of an introduction to the entire book. We see that God has spoken in verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us and his son. God is speaking, and he's used servants and messengers to, to bring his message. But he says now he has sent the final message, Christ himself. Only Christ as God is able to be both the message sender and the message itself. Christ's divinity as the Son is, is emphasized in the end of verse 2 all the way through verse 3. He's appointed the heir of all things, through whom he's made all things. He's the radiance of his, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. His priesthood is emphasized, that he has made purification for sins. His, his kingly, his kingship is emphasized. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that leads into verse 4 where the author transitions into his first argument where he compares what's going on with Christ versus the angels. What is happening with Jesus versus his servants? Jesus versus the angels, that the message Compared with the messengers, the the sun king in comparison with his servants. Christ as God alone, the source of the message. Christ as the savior, the message itself versus angelic beings, the messengers. And so this morning we'll look at two aspects of Christ. Two aspects of Christ as our messenger king. And we'll look at some application after that. So the first section is the message giver. This is in chapter 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 8. We see four contrasts of Christ with the angels. Christ is the message giver. The angels are simply the transportation of the message. 
And so first, we have the divine son versus his, his worshipers. In, chapter, in verse 5 there, we see, for, for which of the angels did he ever, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a direct quote from Psalm 2, verse 7 here. He, the, the rest of this, and, and I want you to, we're going to do a lot of Old Testament. We're going to look back at a lot of the Old Testament quotes here because the original audience knew these quotes. The author knew them, and the context of them is very helpful for understanding what, what he's really saying here. He quotes Psalm 2. There in verse 5, here's, here's Psalm 2, verses 4 through 8. He's talking about Jesus as the divine son. It says this, He who sits in the heaven last, the Lord scoffs at them, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Christ here proven to be the son, the king set up by God himself to rule all. He goes on and again there, and he gives another quote, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. This is a quote taken from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, where, where God is talking with David, actually giving the Davidic covenant and the promises that he gives to David. He says, now, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so we see this, this eternal kingship of Christ, the son of God, the son of David, the ruler of all Israel and all the world set up here. We see that in verse 6, this quote and when he again brings the firstborn of the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship. That's a quote from Psalm 97. Here's what Psalm 97 says in verses 1 through 6. The Lord reigns, all the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and judgment are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries around him. His lightning lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth the heavens declared his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. It's saying here, the angels are made for worship of the one and only one who is worthy of all worship. All the creation bows and worships him. The angels are simply the created beings here to worship him, the Son, the divine King, worthy of all worship. The angels are the worshipers. God is the divine God King. Christ, the ruler. Second, we have the king versus the servants. The king versus the servants here in verses 7 through 9. Uh, again, we get to, and of the angels, he says in verse 7, he quotes again here in verse 7. The, the word angels there in, in Greek, it literally is translated messenger or envoy or one who is sent. He says the angels, they, they're just simply ministers. They're, they're messengers. They're there for a purpose to do God's bidding. You contrast this in verses 8 and 9, but the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous, scepter of the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. We have all this kingly terminology that's happening in there. We have a throne, a scepter, a kingdom, him being anointed. Christ is the king. The angels are merely the servants. He builds on this kingship theme. 
The angels just do what they're told to do. Christ is the point of the kingdom. Third, we have the eternal creator compared with the finite creation. That, that verse there in, in verse 7 there is a quote from Psalm 104. In the context, it's talking about all of God's created things. Here's what he says in verses 24 and then 27 through 31. Oh Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them. All the earth is full of your possessions. They, are, they wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away your spirit, they expire and return to dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. It says the angels are these created beings, the creation. We get to verses 10 through 12 and we see what it says of the Lord himself, the origin of all, the eternal one. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. You were there before it was there. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will become old like a garment, like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The eternal creator versus the finite creation. Christ better than the angels as he is the builder and maker and author of the angels, the one who existed before they were ever thought into existence, and the one who exists forever. Number four. The ruler of all versus the ruled. Verses 13 and 14, then we're actually going to jump into chapter 2, some here. He, he says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a quote from Psalm 110. He goes on right after that. That's verse 1. Verse 2 says, The Lord will stretch forth his strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And he compares this with the angels there in verse 14. It says, they're just ministering spirits sent out to render the service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Here Christ is the ruler, the one who gives the commands. And the angels are those who receive and, and, and follow through on the commands. It's linked to Psalm 103, verses 19 through 22. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. They are simply the ones doing what he's told them to do. The, 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 the whole process of this message coming has nothing to do with them. It's all about the message giver that has sent them and that has ordered them to go. The emphasis is on Jesus, the, the one the angels, angels follow and obey. He's the king. They are not. Skip over chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We're going to come back to that. But, but then verse 5, or verse 7, sorry. Skip all the way through verse 6. Verse 7 then brings this back up. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and he starts quoting again from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, is the context of the six days of creation being done. It says, man is given this mandate to subdue the earth. He controls all of it. The Holy Spirit says, today, if, you're, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Oopsie, I skipped a, sorry, I skipped the passage. Verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified, saying somewhere, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? 
You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. He says, man is over all creation, but the next question that might be, well, Christ became a man. So now does, does he lose his, his rank? Does he, becoming as man, become under the angels, like this verse says, that we've been made a little lower than the angels? And the author goes on then to respond to this question. In verse 9, he's, But we do see him, Christ, who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So just because he has come as man to be like us, does not mean he has lost his place. Actually, his obedience and suffering and death leads to him being crowned the ruler of all. He rules all because of his lowliness in coming. And so the conclusion of this, this first section, the message giver, is that Christ is the one who has sent the message. No one makes much of the messenger, the errand boy, the fact that he's the servant proves that there is someone far greater than him calling the shots, telling him what to do. The ambassador is not greater than the president or king of the country he represents. The very existence of angels as servants proves Christ as the giver of the message the angels bring should be worshipped to the utmost as the God king of all instead of them or anything else less than him being made much of. Which leads to the second point, the message given. The message given. And we have three contrasts here of Christ with the angels. Christ is the message. The angels only talk about it. Our Savior, the first part here is our Savior versus his servants. Our Savior versus his servants. Or the author of the saved versus the minister to the saved. Verse 114 calls the angel. He says that they... they uh, they are not only not the ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. We look ahead then to verse 9 through 11, where it talks about Christ. We see that the angels care for us, they minister to us, but, but Christ tasted death for us in verse 9. Christ suffers to bring us to glory in verse 10. Christ sanctifies us in verse 11. Christ does the entire work the angels just do their bidding. They're, they're helping us after all has been done by Christ alone. The second part of this is we see the maker of God's family versus those outside of the family. He compares Christ as the maker, the builder of the family of God versus the angels who have no part in this family. We see in verse 10 that it says that Christ brings many sons to glory. Verse 11, at the start there, he talks about both he and we are all from one Father. And then the end of verse 11, he calls us brethren, brothers. We're family. This is, this is what Denny was talking about as he was reading through Ephesians. Here's, here's how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 28 through, through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We were brought into God's family through Christ. 
Christ brought us in and has built a family for us. The angels have no part in that relationship. They are simply the household servants to the family of God. Not only did Christ do this, though, but he did so at the cost of the cross. Verse 12, this, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That is a quote from Psalm 22, which is one of the psalms drawn from chiefly with Christ on the cross. Here's part of what Psalm 22 says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaves to my jaw, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, they look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. In verse 22, right in the middle of this, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Here's Christ on the cross going through this tremendous agony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Give me a drink, my mouth is dry, I am pierced through, my, my clothing is divided. And he, in the middle of this, recognizes that the whole point of going through this is to bring us into his family. This proclamation from the cross that brethren, that brothers and sisters would be brought into his family. That the father would have many, many children. Christ goes through all the pain, the suffering, the derision of the cross to bring us to his family. No one else has done that for you. No one else has ever shown you that type of love. There is no comparison here. The angels have no part in this family, have been shown none of this grace. Christ has done this for us to bring us into his family. He is far above the angels. And the third, our helper versus the unhelped. Verses 14 through 18. Christ took on human flesh and died. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Paul writes it this way in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only does he become like us, but he frees us in verse 15, that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Here's how Paul writes about this in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that, he might re that we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
We have been helped. Christ has come to us, come for us. In contrast to this, verse 16, for assuredly he does not give help to the angels. 2 Peter 2 Two four says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, meaning that was our destiny as well, our deserving fate that was due, we are no better than the angels. And these fallen angels who turned away from God, we turn away from God, and yet God, it says, is faithful to his promises, this, this covenant he's made with Abraham, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. That us being found in Christ, receive this covenant blessing, this promise fulfilled in us, that God still cares for us through Christ. And more than this, Christ becomes our propitiation there in verse 17. He's become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, our, our wrath bearer, the one who takes our sin upon himself and takes God's wrath because of our sin, the, the Passover picture the blood of the lamb sparing us. He becomes our high priest. It says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he was suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. He serves on our behalf to bring us to God. While we and the fallen angels are no different in our rejection of God as the king, Christ came as God's message to save us, not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy. That's what Titans 3.5 said. Jesus is the message given to us. Angels can tell us of the good news, but only Christ can accomplish the work of God's message of redemption for us. So some application here from this. And maybe you're thinking, wow, this guy is really down on angels. He must really have had a bad experience. Uh, the point here is not about the angels. He's not saying the angels are bad or they've done wrong or anything. The point is that angels nor anything else that is created in all the world can be held even close to Christ in our value and pursuit of him. Nothing but Christ can stand. Nothing is worthy of the glory. And so he gives this exhortation Chapter 2, verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away. And then in verse 3, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I want to start with that. Don't ignore the point of the message is the first exhortation the author gives you. Don't ignore the message. Knowing the truth is not enough. Maybe you're a child here with Christian parents and you've come to church and you've, you've enjoyed the community and the friendship and the safety that is within this church, but you've never really come to know the Lord. Don't neglect the message. Or maybe you're, you're older and you've been at church for years of your life, the majority of your life. You know these things. And like this Jewish audience, you've been raised in these truths. You know the scriptures well, but you're realizing, I've never come to know him. I know a lot of things about him, but I don't know him. Don't neglect the message. The message has come. Will you hear it? Will you respond to him? Christ is what this is all about. You confess you're a sinner that, that cannot come to God on your own, that needs a high priest, that, that needs a propitiation, that needs someone to wear his wrath to bring you into relationship with him. Second, he says there at the start of chapter 2, pay much closer attention and do not drift. It's the picture of a boat. 
of boats. And if you've been on a lake with a boat before or anything, you know if you don't hold on to it, it sort of starts floating away. Not fast. It just sort of floats away as it starts moving, and you can grab it and pull it back. But if it gets too far out, then you're using the paddle to try to pull. And if it gets too far out, then you're going swimming for the thing. It drifts away. He says, don't drift away. Pay much closer attention. He says, you already know these truths, believers. You know these things. But how will you invest your life and time into applying them? How will you cling more tightly to Christ? Hold that boat next to you. Do not let it drift. Notice it doesn't say just pay attention. It says pay much closer attention. You cannot invest too much time into your relationship with the Lord or knowing him. You cannot be overly delighted by Jesus and seeing him more clearly. Are you getting regular time with the Lord? Are you scheduling time to to hear from him, reading his word, and and talk to him in prayer? Are you pursuing regular fellowship with other believers to, to point one another to him? And that second part, then don't drift. You have the, the put on, pay attention, but the put off, don't drift. I'm guessing none of us came this morning questioning whether angels are better than Jesus or, or even thinking about angels much, much at all, but there are a number of ways we ourselves can miss Christ, focusing on the things sent from him instead of seeing that they should point us to him. It, it could be your Bible reading. You could be spending tons of time faithfully reading God's word, just getting it done as a road activity and missing out on real relationship with him. It could be extra reading from good Christian books that you take in, but they're the ones that get to process through the meat of the word and you listen to their books and podcasts and sermons and you miss out on time with him directly. It could be your prayer life, just asking and asking and asking for things from him instead of taking the time to admire his beauty. It could be a church service, getting distracted by the music and the, the minister and what they're preaching and either the way they're doing it well or not doing it well. It could be doing good things that you spend so much time doing good stuff that you miss out on the Christ who's called you to this, that you're serving him, but you miss out on him. It could be the good blessings that he gives. Matthew 13 talks about the parable of the sower. These things that choke out the message, the, the affliction or persecution, the cares of this life, worries of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth. We don't want to lose our stuff, the ease or the comfort, or the focus on more. We want to gain more, and we try to gain stuff instead of focusing on Christ. It could be family. We take this entity that points us to an eternal family we've been brought into, and we start focusing on making sure everything's perfect, everything's good, no one's fighting, everyone's cared for, and we, we do all this stuff for family and miss Christ. Or it could be leaders. Leaders in the church and the government and the political realm and the school. These leaders that we put our hope in instead of Christ. And the last application point here, are you being a good messenger of Christ to others? The angels have done a good job. They've obeyed exactly what God would call them to, and yet their message has been missed Are you being a faithful messenger? Does your life reflect the king? Does it reflect submission to his authority? Does it reflect his message? Do you call others to know him or do you just call them to righteous living? Think about your political conversations. Do you want the country better or do you want people to know Jesus? Think about your parenting. Do you want your kids just to do the right thing or do you want them to live in light of him? May the message of Christ we speak to others represent him well. How will you respond to the message of Christ? He is the king of all, worthy of all our lives, the message giver and the message itself. 
Will you draw close to him, striving to pay much closer attention? Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus, the message that we have from you. Help us to listen. Help us to heed his word. Take it to heart. Let us be rejoicing in the gospel that you have spoken and given to us through him. We pray this all in his name. Amen.